You may be seated. Wonderful verse. My sin, oh, the thought of this, oh, the this glorious thought that it's nailed to the cross. Not in part, not as if part of our sin is still on us, but in full. Holy nailed to the cross, holy paid for. What wonderful truth that that is. Well, good morning and welcome again. Welcome to church. Welcome to church this morning. I hope that your morning has been encouraging. I hope that uh, you're excited that we're planning a baptism and picnic. I, I'm excited about doing both. It excites me. It excites me that even even thinking of a few of you uh, considering membership and how you can serve in the body. I'm thankful for this little church. I'm thankful that I'm thankful for you. It's encouraging to me. I'm thankful. I'm thankful to be a member of Grace Bible Church, and I trust that you feel the same way. Have you ever wondered about the call to holiness? The call to holiness for the Christian. You know, after all, we are saved by grace, right? And we walk in grace. So is it legalistic to call believers to walk in holiness? J.C. Ryle describes, the holy, describes holiness in the Christian life as follows. He says this, Holiness is the habit of being in, of one mind with God, according as we find His mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what He hates, loving what He loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of His Word. End quote. So, Ryle describes what it looks like to be holy in the Christian life. We're called to walk in holiness. And I think that this sermon, I think that this passage will help us see and understand better this call to walk in holiness. Let me pray for uh, the sermon and pray for our, our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. Let's pray for this sermon. Pray that you would empower the preaching through your Spirit, that you would enliven the hearer to be able to hear and understand and act upon your Word. We thank you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. You read, we made it to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Let me read this passage this morning from verse 17 to verse We'll stop at verse 24. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, 
that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Beloved, it goes without saying that life in the United States during the 18th and 19th centuries were completely different than than it is today. Our modern sensibilities couldn't handle the culture of our country during those days. Life was incredibly difficult before the invention of many technologies that we take for granted. You know that life expectancy in 1800 was between 30 and 40 years. So a person born in 1800 could expect, on average, to live between 30 and 40 years. By the time my grandfather was born in 1900, life expectancy had risen to 47 years. That's to be compared today with 78, 80-year life expectancy for those born today. But that was much higher than most of the rest of the world at that time. As recently as 1921, countries like Canada, think about this, Canada had an infant mortality rate of about 10%. One out of every 10 babies were expected to die during childbirth. Even if they survived the first years of life, many succumbed to horrific disease. Quite frankly, we can credit the discovery of antibiotics for the dramatic increase in life expectancy starting in the 30s and 40s. Prior to that, life was harder than we can imagine. Have you ever walked through a a cemetery, an older cemetery, and saw the the dates? Have you ever ever done that and see how young people were when they passed away? Just surviving in this world took up most people's thoughts and energy. Just a few days ago, I saw an article which stated something to the effect, I couldn't actually find it, I just remember it, stated something to the effect of, of how much we complain indicates our freedom. Here in America, we have much freedom because we complain a whole lot. 200 years ago, our ancestors didn't have much time to complain. You know why? Because hungry people generally don't grumble. They didn't have time for leisure. Vacation was unheard of amongst the masses. I'm convinced that I am absolutely convinced that it is harder to preach the gospel today because the world seems to have so much good to offer. If you pay attention to the news cycle, you'll see this phenomenon. We see the bad news, right? We see the riots. We see the difficulties. We see the struggle. But you will also see hope, and I, and I use that in quotes, hope in the form of medical technologies including ways to extend our lives. You see technology that makes our our lives easier, such as computers and improved modes of transportation. You see peace accords and treaties. You see environmental science, that is, that cleans up the world, including green energy. The, The world looks to these things, and that's where they try to find their hope. But for as much as the world has changed, we're no different than those who came before us. You know, I'm fascinated by people who lived in the past. This past week I read another article about Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. 
Holiday was a larger-than-life character. Most of you, many of you probably heard of him. Yet he, like most of, of those who lived in those days, lived an extremely hard life. At 21, he was diagnosed, 21, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. He had already lost his mother and several family members to that same disease. You know, I, I'm in reading the accounts of his life, I'm convinced that he took a devil-may-care attitude toward life because he knew he was going to die anyway. He knew that, that death was right on the doorstep for him. He knew he could die at any time from tuberculosis. Even, even if he lived, he lived a, a miserable existence. He seemed to have the attitude that it's better to die in a hail of gunfire than in a sickbed. But ironically, he did die of tuberculosis after living 36 grim years on this earth. I've read that he, that he looked at his bootless feet as he lay in bed and laughed, saying he always expected to die with his boots on. Toward the end of his life, Holiday was deputized by the Earp brothers, who were marshals, to stand against a group of outlaws called the Cowboys. These two groups had a famous 30-second shootout which epitomized the Wild West of those days. Here's what's amazing. The Earp brothers, along with Holiday, were the lawmen. They represented the law. From our vantage point, both sides have more than just a little lawlessness. If we look at, at, at Holiday's life, we would say, he was the lawman? It's very easy for us to sit in judgment over men like Holiday. You know, we judge them through a, a modern-day lens. We forget that history is not as neat as it is presented in the history books. It's just like today, history is full of chaos and twists and turns. You may have your heroes and you may have your zeros, but you may find out that your heroes were more flawed than the zeros, if you will. Many times we just don't understand completely. We don't understand that these men were and women were profoundly imperfect. But here's the, here's the, here's the key. There's one constant. Evil still exists. There's a, another type of hero that we need more than ever. More than men like Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. In this crooked generation, we need men and women who desire to walk in holiness. We need men and women who walk, who long to walk like their Lord Jesus walked. We need people who desire to model the newness of life found in Christ Jesus. You see, in many ways, we've cleaned up the world. Our world isn't as dim, in many ways, as it was for Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp, but it's just as lawless. We're just more civilized in our sin. You see, God is still on His throne, and He is in ultimate control. But in our age, God has allowed Satan to control the course of this world. And here's what we need to understand. There are many who are still in the grip of this world. We've been studying the Apostle's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We find ourselves in the last three chapters chapters 4 through 6, where Paul addresses what we call the worthy walk. 
In chapters 1 and 2, Paul had reminded the church the amazing truths about their identity in Christ. Before Christ, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, according to chapter 2, verse 1. Before Christ, they were walking according to the ways of this world, which is controlled by Satan and his band of demons. That's chapter 2, verse 2. And they, before Christ, they were living in the lust of their flesh and indulging in the desires of their flesh and of their mind. That's chapter 2, verse 3. And before Christ, they were children of wrath, just like the rest of the world. That's chapter 2, verse 3 as well. They were still firmly in the grasp of this world. Still firmly there. Still today, many are firmly in the grasp of this world. I'm always struck when I spend time with those who are still unbelievers. The Lord has allowed me to see this from many perspectives. Some folks are stuck in cycles of hopelessness created by alcohol, drugs, sex. For some, these problems are made worse by poverty, lack of education, lack of opportunity, and, and a, just a general lack of hope. Some of these folks turn to lawlessness and to escape these, these problems, right? They turn to gangs. They join gangs, they commit crime, they spend the rest of their lives in prison or in jail. They become so institutionalized that they can't live outside of the structure of, of a prison system. Most of you probably know people in that cycle. Some people are stuck in cycles of greed. They have many of the same challenges, many of the same sins, but they have money and power to cover it up. As such, they're greedy, they're prideful, they're arrogant, they're foolish. Before Christ, here's, here's what's interesting. Before Christ, we were all stuck in one of these patterns. We were all stuck. Some of you here today are still stuck in one of those patterns. We were, as Christians, we were by nature children of wrath. But Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And He raised us up. He raised us up and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, these are some of the most incredible verses in the New Testament. You are walking on a path to destruction, but God, being rich in mercy, because of uh, His great love, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, even when you were uh, stuck in your transgressions and there was nothing you could do about it, you were dead. He made you alive together with Christ. We tend to jump straight to verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We jump there because we are quick to defend salvation by grace through faith, yet we forget, we forget that verses 4 through 7 are actually the main point of that paragraph. More specifically, the main verbs of that paragraph are found in verse 6, that we have been raised up and we have been seated with Him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. 
Now, in the context of our current passage, and chapter 4, verse 17 through 24, we need to ask what Paul means that we are in Christ Jesus. He actually repeatedly uses this phrase to describe the, the Christian life. He says that we are in Christ or in Him almost 20 times in the first three chapters. So it's, a, it's an, a, an incredibly important concept of what it, what it means. It's vital that we understand what it means to be in Christ. Now there's two different ways to look at what it means to be in Christ. One, it is positional. It is positional. We are in Christ in that we are immersed, we were immersed in this world, and now as Christians, we are immersed in Christ. It's like being in a swimming pool with the water all around you. Now, before you were immersed in your sin, now you're immersed in Christ. He's taken you out of that and he's placed you in him. In other words, you've been taken out of this world and placed in the heavenlies positionally. We've been made new. We are new creatures in Christ. We've been made, it's not, it's not a, John MacArthur says it this way, it's not a remodel job, it's a complete change. You've been completely changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. Beloved, as Christians, you have been made new. That's positionally. Listen to what John MacArthur says to describe this newness of life and full transfer, the full transfer, transformation that it brings. He says this, As you study the epistles of Paul, you find that he talks about a new will, a new mind, a new heart, a new power, a new knowledge, a new wisdom, a new perception, a new understanding, a new life, a new inheritance, a new relationship, a new righteousness, a new love, a new desire, a new citizenship, and it goes on and on. In fact, summing it all up, the Bible says it is newness of life. He goes on to say, and I think this is important, I've heard a lot of people teach that when you become a Christian, he gives you something new. You still have the old nature. Your old nature is still there and so forth. But God gives you something new. But according to the Word of God, you are new. It isn't just a matter of addition. It's a matter of transformation. You have been made new. So it's position, positional. Secondly, it's practical. It's practical. You see, we live in this world. We still have this body of flesh. We're, in, we're still in the battle against temptation and sin. So the question becomes, how are we supposed to walk as a Christian? As that new creation in Christ, in this world, considering our actual position in Him. And that's a, really the question that Paul answers in the final three chapters of this letter. And understanding Paul's point, and today's passage will help us know how to conduct ourselves in this world. Now, this brings us to the first of two commands, two main commands, which Paul gives to describe the walk of holiness for the believer. We're going to cover the first command today. The first one is, you are not to live as the heathen ones. You're not to walk as the Gentiles walk. Look at verse 17. 
chapter 4, verse 17. He says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. In verse 17, Paul picks back up on his thought from verse 3. This, this verse resumes his discussion of the worthy walk. In verses 4-16, through 16, he took the time to discuss the source of our unity and growth in Christ. This, this discussion from 4-16 to, 4 to uh, 16 arose out of his command to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit. Christ, by His Spirit, has granted us gifts which we use to serve His body for the purpose of being built up in love. At this point, though, in verse 17, he returns to describe the worthy walk. Now, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul had already affirmed, had, had affirmed that his authority as an apostle of Christ came by the will of God. According to 3.2, he was granted the stewardship of God's grace for the sake of the church. Therefore, Paul's words carried great authority. But we can't forget that the true authority comes from Christ Himself. We know this because Christ confirms this truth in 17. He says, I, This I say and affirm together with the Lord. He has, he has been given this authority, but He wants them to know, He wants the people to know that this is on the authority of Christ Himself. Now, I think that we can argue the reason he affirms this is because Paul understood the difficulty of this command. I don't know how much we appreciate it. There's a, I think there's a reason for him in invoking the name of the Lord here. These people lived in Ephesus and where they were clearly influenced by those who were still locked, locked into the cultish practices which existed among the Gentile citizens of that city. They're still there. They still live in that city. They're still influenced by those practices. Many of you have had that same problem, right? You, you, you've been called out of a, a life, but you still are around the same friends at times. And you're influenced by those friends. And you can be drawn back into the, the old ways of life. Paul's saying, don't do that. Paul's saying, stay away from it. Therefore, Paul's command in verse 17 proves to be incredibly difficult. You might even argue it's impossible. Impossible to obey, that is, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, he can say, do this, or don't do this, but in reality, in their own power, they cannot do it. They need, they need the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. Now, before we fully get into Paul's command in 4.17, I want to remind you, again, that the final three chapters are based around five walk commands. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we are called to work, walk worthy of the call of Christ. This, this is the main walk command, which forms, I believe, the, the theme of chapters three or 4 through 6. In light of what Paul had taught in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, in light of the doctrinal truths that he had, the wonderful truths that he had taught, especially if you think of chapter 2, verses uh, 1, through 1 through 10, you see what, 
what Christ has done in raising us up and seating us with Him as Christ has redeemed us through His blood. And in light of that truth, in light of the fact that we're now in Christ positionally, you are to walk worthy of that call. Here in verses 17 through 32, we're called to walk in holiness. Called to walk in holiness. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we're called to walk in love according to God's perfect design. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, we're called to walk as children of the light. And in chapter 5, 15 through 6, 9, we're called to walk in wisdom. But here we're picking up on the second, the second command. Which I would, which I would argue describes the walk of holiness in Christ. Look back at your text. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Here Paul calls for the believer to stop living like the Gentiles and start living like a new creation in Christ. We have to remember that the church at Ephesus was primarily a Gentile church. And, and we need to understand this command in that light. Therefore, Paul calls them to stop living as they previously lived. There needs to be a break. In the introduction, we looked at chapters, chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, where Paul gave the general description of an unbeliever's life. We should recognize that this described the people in the church at Ephesus before Christ. Now, just remind you that, that this description also fits each of us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We lived in the lust of our flesh. Now Paul, he, now he takes the time in chapter 4 to, to give a further and more in-depth description into the state of, the, of Gentiles. And that is Gentile unbelievers. They walked in the futility of their mind. The definition of this word is helpful as we try to understand Paul's point. The word futility has the idea of worthlessness, purposelessness, even vanity or emptiness. In Romans 8.20, Paul used the same words to describe the futility or the purposelessness of the creation after the fall. The earth was created to bring forth fruit of its own, but now it brings forth thorns and thistles which have no good purpose. In 1 Corinthians 15.17, he says that our faith is worthless, same word. Worthless if Christ has not been raised from the dead. In other words, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith would be rendered useless. It would be of no account. Here in Ephesians 4, he applies this word to the mind, to the mind of the Gentile unbeliever. The word for mind has the idea of understanding, even our moral attitude toward things. Therefore, this phrase carries the idea of not having a mind which can comprehend God. Uh, they don't have a mind which can comprehend God. They don't have a mind which can comprehend His revelation. The, the Gentile unbelieving mind, according to Paul, is incapable of processing the truths of God and making decisions based on His wisdom. So, unbelievers then live in a, a constant state of contradiction a constant state of, of contradiction even among, in, in themselves. Even a, a cursory scan of today's headlines proves this to be true. We live in a, a world that's full of chaos. It's, it's full of chaos because of this contradiction, because of the clamor of the unbelieving mind. 
Paul goes on to say that we're not to walk in darkness. Look back at your text. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. He gives further further insight into the into the walk of unbelief. This this idea has an idea of a clouded or darkened mind that is incapable of proper reasoning. It is it doesn't work right. They they exist they exist in the futility of their mind because they are incapable of reasoning things properly, especially the things of God. And according to the text, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them. The idea is that they're separated from the life which comes from God. In other words, they never had it. They don't, they're, they're outside of it, and they continue to exist outside of it. In 2.12, Paul told the Gentile believers in Ephesus that they, were, they should remember that they were at one time separated from Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That was their state before Christ. That was their state before, before Christ saved them. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by what? By the blood. By the blood of Christ. And in 2.18, he says now that they've, they've been given access. They've been given full access and one spirit to the Father so that they're no longer strangers and aliens, but they're of God's household. Before they were saved, they were completely ignorant of God's revelation and of His will. They had no part in it. They were completely separated. I don't know about you, but I, I can remember some of my thoughts as an unbeliever. I remember knowing that God exists. But I had no idea how to live for him. I have no idea what he expected of me, except that he was some deity that expected more than I could do. But what we have to understand is, is that this is not this is not an in, innocent ignorance. It's a but it's a willful ignorance because of the hardness of the heart. Turn to turn in your text to Romans one. I want to show you this. I'll show you the progression of what happens. Just listen, just listen to this text. Starting in verse 18, Romans 1.18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now let's stop right there. God's wrath has been made known against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What kind of men are these? Well, they're men who suppress the truth. What does that mean? They, they hold it down. They push it down. They, they don't allow it to be made known. They, they push it down so that it isn't revealed to them. How do they do this? Well, according to Paul, they do it in unrighteousness. Said another way, they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth because they desire their sin more than they desire the Creator. 
I guarantee you that if you talk to people who say they're atheists, there's no such thing, by the way. Everybody knows there's a God. But you talk to them. If you get to the root of it, if they're honest with you, if they're transparent with you, what you'll find is, is that they're suppressing that which they know because they don't want they don't want to talk about it because if they talk about it, if God exists, then they are accountable to Him. And they can't have their sin. They can't do what they want to do. They're not innocent. There is a willful ignorance that suppresses the truth. Look at verse 19. Paul goes on, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. In other words, God has made Himself evident to every person who lives. It is evident within them. They have God's law written on their heart. They've been given a knowledge of God within themselves. You know, many who, you know, they try to make excuses for God. You know, they, they, then they end up rejecting Christianity because men and women who haven't heard the gospel, they haven't heard of Christ, they, they're condemned. You know, you know, you've heard that, right? What, what about the person who's never heard of Christ? How can God condemn them? Well, according to Paul, every person who has ever lived has been given enough knowledge of God to condemn them. They suppress that truth. They suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. Because God has made it evident to them. Let's keep reading. For since, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are what? Without excuse. They have no excuse. Creation reveals the, the holiness of God. Creation reveals who He is. Not enough to save us. We need the gospel for that. We need special revelation. We need the Word of God. But He's revealed enough to know that He exists. He reveals enough to condemn. This reminds me of Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. In other words, all we need to do is look at the heavens to see the handiwork of God. The heavens tell of His glory and the work of His hand. Back in Romans 1, we see the process which Paul describes in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became, there's a word again, futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. You see, they had a knowledge of God, but they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him as God. So they succumbed to the futility of their minds. Their hearts were darkened. And this process started with this suppressing of the truth of God and unrighteousness. It leads to darkened hearts and futility of the mind. And what is the end result? Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the, in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, they instead of worshiping God, the Creator who created all these things, 
the holy the holy one who created all these things they created or they worshiped the idols so the point is there's no such thing as innocence innocent people that is everyone who's ever lived outside of the life of God or somewhere in this process. In Romans 1 and Ephesians 4, Paul makes it very clear that humans have rejected the knowledge of God revealed to them, revealed within them and revealed through His creation. They have refused to glorify Him as God and thank Him for the life He has given. As a result, their reasoning process becomes purposeless and their heart is darkened. Their worldly wisdom becomes nothing more than foolishness. They have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, therefore, this is the key, they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, therefore they are they're without excuse. They can't blame God. The blame and responsibility falls squarely back on them. And according to verse 18, their heart has become hardened, and they have suppressed the truth and they have suppressed the truth which has hardened their heart. Now back in Ephesians 4. I think Romans 1 helps us understand. But I think I think in Romans or in Ephesians 4, we can we can look at the the true cause and effects. That, that understanding the true cause and effects helps us better understand why Paul exhorts the church at Ephesus in this way. Perhaps it's best that we look at this passage in reverse to understand the process, and it matches with the process in Romans 1. Harold Honer says it this way. This is back in Ephesians chapter 4. The hardness of their hearts toward God caused their ignorance, their ignorance concerning God and His will caused them to be alienated from the life of God. The alienation caused their minds to be darkened, and their darkened minds caused them to walk in the futility of mind. You see the process. You see what happens. They harden their heart toward God, which causes their ignorance. Their ignorance causes them to be alienated. They're, they're outside of the life of God. Their alienations causes, alienation causes their mind to be darkened, and those darkened minds cause them to walk in the futility of their mind. Look at verse 19. This is back in Ephesians 4.19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Because they have insisted on suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, because they have become ignorant, because they have been alienated from the life of God, they are now calloused and they are insensitive to the things and the ways of God. They have no way of understanding. They have no idea of God's revelation or His will. They're completely separate. And at that point, they give themselves over to sensuality. They give themselves over to their sexual desires. They give themselves over to all sorts of deviant behavior. 
Now, for those who went on and read Romans one twenty six, you know in that passage that it says that God gave them over. So here in Ephesians 4, it says they gave themselves over. In Romans 1, it says that God gave them over. Uh, I would argue that there's two, two stages described here. These unbelievers exercise their perversion of their own will. Um, they, they do so. They give themselves over. That's Ephesians 4. But God then completely gives them over to that sin. That's Romans 1. So God cannot be charged for judging the innocent because all mankind stands guilty before Him. They've given themselves over to sin and they have no shame in the things that they do. And we've been talking about Ephesus. And we've been talking about the culture in Ephesus. And what Paul is saying is don't go back. Don't, don't live like the Gentiles. Unbelieving Gentiles. But for us, it's, it's, it's really the same. For all the things that have changed, nothing has changed. We see the same spiral in today's culture. Recently, I, there's a popular video by a well-known I, 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 artist which glorifies sex in a way that re- fully reveals how far we have fallen as a, as a, as a culture. I will not glorify either the artist or the filth by naming them. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. It's horrifying to know that in the past couple of weeks, Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee for president, was interviewed by this artist. These so-called artists have no shame. Nor do the people, let me, let me say it this way, nor do the people who regularly or openly consume this rubbish, this garbage. It's nothing but garbage. And that a top government official, a nominee for the presidency, gave them relevance by, by having an interview with them is beyond reprehensible. And this is the garbage that our kids are consuming. Garbage. Trash. You know, he gave them, Joe Biden gave her relevance because this person is popular. Popular. Mainstream. Popularity. Back in Ephesians, they do these things with greediness. They want more and more of what they desire. It's a never-ending spiral which never stops until it brings about death. That's the spiral that we're in. You might be asking, what is, why does Paul apply this to, to Christians? Can Christians fall into this type of behavior? Well, the answer is a qualified yes. Christians can get caught up in this type of behavior. The Christian can struggle with it. But let me tell you something. That struggle should resemble an all-out war. An all-out war against the flesh. The Christian must see that this type of conduct is antithetical to God. And, by the way, it may indicate an unbelieving heart. 
I've mentioned on a few occasions the former pastor, Josh Harris. His is a cautionary tale for the Christian. I, I continue to pray for him. I hope you do as well. What's interesting about Josh Harris to me is that he's highly active on social media, especially Instagram. So it's easy to, it's easy to keep up with him. He's actually, he was a pastor. So he's a, he's, a, he's a very good communicator. So he gives great insight into his heart. So periodically, I, I see his feed. About a month ago, he posted a picture and a comment about the artist I mentioned above. So he commented about this artist, artist that has this trash, this, this garbage. He said this. He said this. I wanted to take a break from anything controversial and just point out that the song Blank by Blank is basically the biblical book of Song of Solomon set to music. Now, if, if any of you know what I'm talking about, I hope you don't, actually, but if you do, you'll, you'll be, you're appalled at this point. He says this, Surely there's some enterprising youth pastor who is working on a teaching series called The Shulamite Had Some Blank. Fill in the blank with the name of the song. That's what he said. A few days later, he used another popular artist, artist song to describe how he was deconstructing his, his faith, how his faith is being deconstructed. The star, the star once played a wholesome, wholesome character on Disney. Harris went on to admit in that post, this is, this is incredibly insightful, beloved. I want you to listen to this. He says this. He's talking about his life now outside of Christ. He says this. Sometimes I look at my life or the crazy things I post on Instagram and I hardly recognize myself. I know that in a very ecclesiastic, ecclesiastic, ecclesiastes-ish kind of way, I'm acting out right now. Testing things. I am swinging and reacting. And I am not... This is, this is what's really telling. And I am not in any type of respectable balance. End quote. Beloved, you might look at the fall of this former pastor and think that he has fallen a long way. But let me tell you something. Tell you something. Don't forget this. When a man falls, or a woman, he doesn't have very far to fall. He's been falling for a long time before it became evident. You see, these falls are generally the result of small compromises along the way. Josh Harris is one very, very public example of what it looks like for the Christian to give themselves over to sensuality. And I, I would not be surprised. I would actually be surprised if, if that, that change didn't start happening a long time before it became public. And I would argue that we can expect a continued spiral downward in his life unless God sovereignly chooses to stop it. Let me get very personal with you here. This is serious. 
guys. I mean, this is, I mean, the walk of holiness is serious. Because we see the, we see the potential, right? You see the potential. We're positionally in Christ. But we're talking about how we are to, how we are to live our lives. And you might say, well, you know, pastor, that's getting pretty legalistic. Are you, are you crossing that line in legalism? I don't think so. I don't think so. Let me get personal. I'll start with you believers that have been in Christ for a long time. Perhaps you've been making little compromises. Maybe you're not taking your relationship with Christ as seriously as you once did. I'll let Spurgeon give you the warning. He says this, If you think you can walk in holiness without keeping up perpetual fellowship with Christ, you have made a great mistake. If you would be holy, remember J.C. Ryle's description of holiness? If you would be holy, you must live close to Jesus. End quote. Perhaps you're in the middle of your life. You've been a Christian for a long time, but now you're not as selective about the things that you do. Maybe you're not as selective about what you're consuming on television. After all, you're free in Christ, right? You can, you can do these things. You can watch television all you want. But you found yourself watching more and more vulgar programming. Perhaps you're even watching what amounts to soft pornography. It's not as, but it's not as soft as you've made yourself out to think it is, right? Or maybe you're a husband and a father and you found yourself regularly viewing things that you ought not be uh, consuming and you know it. In the privacy of your uh, computer screen, you're viewing things that you know you shouldn't be viewing. Some Christians even try to justify it. They may even want to view it and try to view it with their wives. You know, to spice things up. Only further defiles. I also speak to the youth. What type of material are you consuming? Would you open your viewing history up here on the screen? Let everybody see it. It's dangerous dangerous Paul says don't walk as the Gentiles walk for us it's don't walk as the world walks don't watch the things the world watches don't glorify the things that the world glorifies don't make it relevant in your life kill it brethren these are Extremely uncomfortable questions, aren't they? But we must be willing to ask them. And again, look, we have to recognize that compromises, suppressing the truth, knowing, knowing that God is against these things, and continuing to do them will lead to further compromises which can lead to our ultimate destruction. This is not legalism. 
this is absolutely dead serious. It's seriousism, if you will. The Bible continually warns us not to love the world. 2 John, or 1 John, I didn't didn't write the address down, but I'll read it anyway. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. James writes, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I need to make an appeal to the unbelieving that's listening here today. Or might listen later online. If you're unbelieving, if you haven't given your life to Christ, I beg you to turn to Him. This world is passing away. This world is fleeting. It's a vapor. And you are passing away with it. Oh, it may, not be, it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, and it may not be next week. It may not even be next month or next year. It may not even be next century. I don't know when it is, but you face death, and you face the wrath of God when you die, if you're not in Christ. I beg you, be reconciled to God through Christ. Trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Trust in His redemption By His blood. We sang it earlier. The Christian can say, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. You can't say that as an unbeliever. You can't say that as an unbeliever. You will stand before God. You will stand before a holy God and answer for everything. If you're a believer here today, I'll end with a small taste of next week. Ephesians 4.20 Paul's gone through and he's described the Gentile, the walk of the Gentile. And he says in verse 20, he says this, these are glorious words. But you did not learn Christ in this way. He's shown them how not to walk. And he's going to take the next several verses to show them how to live the Christian life in holiness. He's going to show them the holy walk. Spurgeon helps us see how critical this is in the life of our church. He says this, and we'll end with this. In proportion as a church is holy, in that proportion will its testimony for Christ be powerful. End quote. You want, you desire for Christ's name to be proclaimed? That testimony will not be powerful if it doesn't match a life of holiness. And that stands for everybody here who names the name of Christ. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We praise you for this warning not to walk as Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Father, may we not, as Christians, give ourselves over to sensuality. May we not suppress the truth, but may we live in righteousness and holiness. Father, we thank you for all that Christ has done in dying for us, saving us by grace through faith. We pray these things in his precious and holy name. Amen.